The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. I want to stress from the outset that this pandemic is far from over. This is all about trust now and personal responsibility and just being careful and not being selfish. We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The idea of an irreversible move was taken off the table. You can't do that when you have no idea where the virus is going to go. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing. And good afternoon. I'm Caroline Hepker. So the relationship with Europe is back in focus today. The Brexit Minister David Frost says that it would be justifiable to essentially rip up the Northern Ireland Protocol as he calls for it to be redrawn. Frost says that the circumstances exist to justify invoking Article 16, i.e. suspending parts of the protocol. But now is not the right time to do that. Instead, the government is demanding that the EU gets back to talking on this issue Roger, the response from the bloc has been, well, terse, refusing to renegotiate, saying that there are already solutions in the current agreement. Meanwhile, there is a pandemic crisis. The British retail consortium is urging the government to act to change self-isolation guidance for workers. Industry bosses say retailers are under increasing number and increasing pressure to keep shelves fully stocked amid staff shortages. And Caroline, there's been an announcement from the government on uh, an issue to do, which is very pertinent to do with vaccine passports. Absolutely. The Business Secretary Kwasi Kwarteng says that MPs may not get a comprehensive vote on the introduction of coronavirus vaccine passports for entry into nightclubs. MPs may actually only get a vote on the concept of vaccine passports. Right, well, let's pick up some of these issues with Mike Wood, Conservative MP for Dudley South, who joins us now. Mike, thanks very much for being with us today. Uh, let's start then. We'll, we'll get on to the virus stuff in a minute. First of all, let's start with the Brexit crisis, because it has now come back into view. The protocol, of course, was the agreement that the government signed up to. Boris Johnson signed up to it. I suppose one could say, shouldn't they just abide by it? Well, I think both both sides signed up to something where I think we'd understood that we're looking at a light light touch doing you know, essential checks across the Irish uh, the Irish Sea in order to make sure that obviously there weren't physical um, barriers across the Irish border for obvious reasons. The way the EU seems to have been interpreting some of these rules as being extremely officious and checks that have been carried out in a way that actually they don't apply to many other non-EU countries. So I think they do seem to be going a bit over the top on in this. But the protocol, as Lord Frost was saying, does have these specific mechanisms where where the provisions are uh, causing you know, disproportionate economic or social uh, harm to one side or the other for the provisions to be suspended. I think I, I agree with Lord Frost that we don't want to do that if there's a choice. I think a negotiated solution is far better if a sensible solution can be reached that actually recognises the interests and the priorities of both sides. Um, it's only a few months since the government signed up 
agreement. A continuing confrontation surely is likely to lead to more tensions in Northern Ireland this summer. What is the way out? What are these solutions? Well, I mean, at the moment, it, it, it really is page after page after page of uh, documents that need to be completed, submitted. If Marks and Spencer's are to sell a ham and cheese sandwich in in Northern Ireland that is produced in mainland Britain. I mean, it's, it's an entirely disproportionate approach to trying to maintain, obviously, the uh, cytosanitary standards that we all want to uh, protect. But I think there is, there is a more proportionate uh, way of doing this. And a lot of it is going to have to uh, rely on trust. But our, our standards are at least equal to the EU's. EU standards are also extremely high. And there's no reason why we shouldn't, we shouldn't be able to be trading between the UK and the EU. But there's certainly no reason why we shouldn't be able to be treat, uh, trading between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. But, but at the same time, what you're saying is there should be reason on all this, and I suppose everyone probably accepts that. But if you have a single market, that single market, which the EU has, has to be protected. It's how it works. You can't just uh, perhaps allow trust to be the basis of how that works, because uh, the possibility of that being breached is rather strong. So in the end, isn't this something that simply can't be solved? Well, I think it can be solved when you look at, uh, for example, how goods move between the EU and neighbouring non-EU uh, countries other than uh, other than Northern Ireland, which is far more seamlessly that there isn't necessarily, you don't necessarily have to sign up to, you know, every dot and comma in single market and customs union legislation in order to be able to uh, just demonstrate mm-hmm. that the products that you're supplying are the ones you're saying that you're supplying, they produce the standards that you've legislated for, and therefore you should just be able to trade across borders so the consumers can buy what businesses are producing in whichever direction. Um, How much faith really can voters have, though, in the Prime Minister? He got Brexit done, but it doesn't work. I mean, I spent seven years working in the European Parliament. I mean, I'm quite familiar with the way a lot of European negotiations uh, work, and they're very hard uh, negotiators, and a, a concluded agreement isn't necessarily the the final solution, as we've seen with this protocol. Actually, they, it's almost seen as the starting point as to what extra provisions you can build from there, and that can't be a one-way street. We need to be saying, look, this is what we agree. This is what clearly what was understood by that agreement. Now, let's get back. Let's not put up those unnecessary barriers that aren't in either of our side's interests, and let's let you know consumers in Northern Ireland buy British products in exactly the same way as. We want them to also be able to buy products from Republic of Ireland. Okay, Mike, let's move on to a different subject, and one, of course, that is foremost, I guess, in most people's minds in the country at the moment, which is the consequences of the virus, and specifically the regulations that exist, or perhaps there's some confusion as to whether they do still exist, really, in terms of what we can and can't do, particularly on things like self-isolation. I mean, first of all, the, the pandemic crisis, as it's called, the empty shells we've seen pictures of, is it time to relax self-isolation rules just to solve that one? Well, I mean, I was self-isolating last week after being pink. My daughter's been self-isolating this week after coming into contact with someone at her school. It, it's an absolute pain. And, of course, for, 
for businesses and you know particularly if it's people who are self-employed but also you know, obviously across retail and services the loss of workforce is causing a, a massive problem i think we're expecting something on essential workers hopefully today we need to be clarifying that but i think the sooner we can be moving towards a position where if people are having regular tests that are all coming back negative, then it can at the very least shorten the period at which for which people are self-isolating. Are we focusing on the right numbers? 619,000 alerts sent out last week in terms of pings, in terms of people who have to self-isolate, but we're still getting something in the region of 50,000 new coronavirus cases every single day, and only half the adult population has been vaccinated. Is are we not going to simply have to reverse a lot of these easing measures pretty soon? Well, it's rather more than half the adult population has been vaccinated, isn't it? Two, two-thirds of adults in the UK have had two vaccines. Um, that li- so, still leaves a lot of people vulnerable. That's millions of people who haven't been. Absolutely, and I, I would certainly encourage everybody, uh, if they haven't yet had their vaccine, to get their first dose and obviously if they've already had their first dose, to make sure they get the second dose of the vaccine as soon as uh, as it is uh, due, because it's the way to keep them safe and to keep everyone else uh, safe as well. We know that the, um, the, the infections are being driven largely by very high infection rates amongst uh, younger age groups, people in their in their teens, 20s and 30s, but that as each week goes by, that infection rate moves up an age age group. And so we do need to uh, to get the infection rates down amongst younger people because otherwise it will spread uh, to, to older groups who, even if they have been double vaccinated, are more vulnerable. And that's when we do see increasing hospital admissions and sadly people losing their lives. Let me ask you about vaccine passports, because that's something which we now understand there may not be a, a full MP's vote on, or at least not a comprehensive vote uh, on the issue. But it is one that's very vexed, not least, of course, on Conservative backbenches. Uh, what's your view of vaccine passports? Well, I might, my view is broadly that uh, uh, we know that a uh, negative test for someone who's not being vaccinated is at least as good a an indicator of somebody who's double vaccinated but hasn't been tested. We know the risk is no higher. So I think if we're looking at passports, we do need to have that testing option as part of it. Um, There's part of me that thinks that the announcements this week were as much about sending a signal that we do need younger people to be, uh, to come forward for these, uh, for these vaccines. That's the best way to make sure that they will be able to continue to do all of the things that we, you know, we enjoy doing and take you know, take for granted. I think we'll uh, wait to see until September as to what is actually proposed at that point, and certainly how the decision's been taken. Because I'm not sure that what's been signalled this week is necessarily what we'll see at the end of September. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, 
influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. But let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. And first of all, Caroline, there's concern about how much money is being paid to emergency staff. Yes, praise or a raise. A 3% pay rise to NHS staff in England and Wales has been called appalling and shambolic by unions. Already some are talking about the prospect of industrial action. The Health Secretary, Sajid Javid, says that he realises NHS pay really matters. This is a real terms increase. For the average nurse, it will mean £1,000 more a year. And we're backdating the pay rise to April. I'm sure that this pay rise will make a real difference to people's lives. The Health Secretary, Sajid Javid, will his colleague, the Environment Secretary, George Eustace, meanwhile, has come under fire in the House of Commons, but he downplayed the concerns about empty shelves, the pandemic, of course, by insisting staff shortages were lower now than compared to earlier in the COVID-19 pandemic. He was urged by the Shadow Environment Secretary, Luke Pollard, to get a grip over securing the UK's food supplies as retailers struggle to keep the shelves fully stocked. Yeah, a record number of people in England and Wales have now been told to self-isolate by that NHS COVID app. Figures show nearly 619,000 alerts uh, were sent out last week, uh, telling them to that they had come into contact with people who tested positive a rise from 520,000. The British Retail Consortium is urging the government to act to change self-isolation guidance for workers. Industry bosses say retailers are under increasing pressure to keep shelves fully stocked amid all of those shortages. Now, it hardly seems possible, but it's already two years since Boris Johnson got the keys to 10 Downing Street. It's hard to remember what a different world it was back then. No Covid and the Brexit issue dominating everything. Boris won the Tory leadership contest after Theresa May stood down. Despite, according to Dominic Cummings this week, nobody thinking he was actually the right choice to be Prime Minister. He was there, Cummings says, just to solve a problem. But he won an election landslide five months later, and then he was faced with what is the greatest challenge, really, the UK has faced, some say, since the Second World War. We're joining us now to talk about Boris Johnson in the first two years is Tom Bauer, who wrote the biography, Boris Johnson, The Gambler. Tom, thanks for being with us today. Um, can we still think of Boris Johnson as being a successful gambler at this point? Well, more than ever. He's still, in, he's still there. Um, he's gambled throughout the last two years and before that, yes. Well, uh, having said that, limping into the sort of summer period with COVID chaos uh, still all around, and um, despite the restrictions being rolled back, the Prime Minister does face surely some risks now? Well, exactly. That's my point, you see, that he has lots of risks, but he gambles all the time, mm -hmm. that the risks will pay off and he'll survive, succeed, and go on to enjoy these extraordinary ratings. I, the, the point about Boris Johnson is that he has always taken risks and he is a very, very lucky gambler that he gets away with it. And uh, you speak of COVID chaos. Uh, I mean, yes, it is a mess, but every country is experiencing the same mess and he's taken what is a, a great gamble to uh, release uh, the country, so-called Freedom Day. I mean, it's, uh, obviously it's conditional in the hope that uh, the disease will work its way out by the time winter comes. That is a gamble. And if it works, 
he'll get the praise. If it doesn't work, he'll have to find another solution. But somehow he had to get out of this constant cycle of lockdowns and screwing the economy, and worse than that, causing enormous mental anguish for vast numbers of people. Is he then well regarded? And you mentioned his continuingly strong ratings. Just because people say, well, COVID, I mean, that's a problem no one could come well out of. We don't know how we'd solve it, so we just are sympathetic, even if he makes a bit of a mess of it. Well, I think you could make a big distinction between metropolitan London and people outside London. Uh, nobody I've spoken to outside London has ever said to me that anybody else in Westminster could have done a better job. And that, in the end, is the criteria. Everyone knows it was an impossible job and an impossible a problem to overcome. And one's got to remember right at the very beginning in January last year, or February last year, Boris Johnson announced he was following the science. So Valance and Witty and all the other people on stage gave him loads of advice, which I've sifted through very, very carefully, and he did exactly what they told him. Jeremy Farrer's recent uh, book about the, the bad science and bad politics is frankly not reflected in the Sage Minutes or in the newspaper reports of the first three months. I mean, the point is that Boris Johnson followed the advice and the scientists got it wrong, not to blame, because it was un unexpected and unprecedented. And I think people outside London acknowledge that. And those in London who criticize him for the chaos and that are the same people who said he's a liar, that he's a racist, that he's lazy, that he's no attention to detail, and all the rest. And, you know, the, the, the facts have proved... The opposite. He's a most multicultural cabinet. He's got uh, masses of attention to detail. He's just had a very, very bad hand to play. I think the weaknesses are in other places, and that is very much reflected in the book and in his life, that he's a loner, that he has very few friends or none at all. And he, what he, his great uh, weakness when he entered Downing Street, which he hasn't remedied, of course, is that he hasn't got around him a group of very wise, experienced political experts who actually can advise, not only that, but criticise what he's doing. Well, I mean, and he's got one very famous former advisor um, with whom, oh, who, who knows which side, but, but they have fallen out spectacularly. Yes. Dominic Cummings, obviously. Yes. I mean, and that has, um, you know, made headlines, obviously. So it's not just sort of the, the metropolitan elite, uh, journalists included, let's say, I mean, Dominic Cummings has, has made a whole slew of accusations about Boris Johnson being unsuitable for office. I mean, is, is that the sort of person that, that, that you recognise or do you recognise Boris Johnson through Dominic Cummings' dis description? Well, of course, Dominic Cummings, who I know, is part of the metropolitan elite. Yeah. Dominic Cummings provided two very, very important uh, props and, for, for Boris Johnson. First of all, he helped him become the leader. Three lots. Then, of course, getting Brexit done and then winning the election. I mean, one's got to remember, the choice at the time was quite clear. It was either Boris Johnson or Jeremy Corbyn, an anti-Semitic Marxist. Jeremy Hunt could never have got the red wall seats uh, from Labour to win the election in 2019. That was only Boris who could have done that. And Boris Johnson only became the leader of the Tory party after they lost uh, spectacularly in a by-election. They got 9% of the vote in a Hampshire by-election. And everyone suddenly realized that the outsider was the only person who could save the party and the government. So, you know, Theresa May was a cat catastrophe, and that was a terrible inheritance, including the Irish Protocol. 
he really did have all the cards stacked against him. But getting back to Cummings, mm. Cummings undoubtedly provided excellent advice for campaigning. He had great hopes for Cummings in one particular regard, which was to reform Whitehall, because what Johnson discovered was that Whitehall is not a Rolls-Royce, it's a, a sort of spluttering old Volkswagen. And it's staffed by very, very incompetent people who rise higher and higher with their incompetence and couldn't deliver on all the things that COVID required and much more besides, let alone the defence industry, which is a catastrophe and education is a mess. I mean, Whitehall is not fit for purpose and Cummings was the right man to change it. But he has a personality disorder. I mean, that's one of the rare things that David Cameron got right. He's a career psychopath and his outburst now, this constant, constant attack on Johnson is really a reflection of a very, very, I don't mean in the nastiest way, but a deranged man. I mean, he, he, he couldn't work there. He treated people appallingly. He's not a team player. He arrived dressed as a slob. He made great note of the point that he was an outsider and a terrorist within. Uh, he clearly was, as one of the rare things that Carrie Johnson got right was, he was unfit. For Downing Street. So well, Boris Boris relied on him and hung on too long to him. But but Tom, what about Boris himself? As is he a good prime minister? Does he govern well? I mean, some of the points that that Cummings has made, and he has the evidence to show, seem to suggest someone who doesn't really know what they're doing. Well, give an example. Well, for example, where he talked about perhaps uh, wanting to, uh, you know, let let the, the, let COVID rip in certain areas, pile up the bodies, all these quotes, yes, also about letting the over-80s die off. I mean, this yes. doesn't sound like someone who is concerned about all the people he's governing. Well, I think that Boris Johnson has a particular way of speaking, like the letterbox women and like the um, melon, watermelon smiles. That He has a very, very colourful way of speaking, which is easy to uh, take out of context. The point is that uh, Valence and Witty and others on stage at the beginning of the pandemic were totally in favour of the herd immunity, that people should die because that's the only way that we could in the end cope. And so if he said it in an email or said it in one way or another, I wouldn't take it that he, he's a provocative man, just like he was in his journalism. And I think that Cummings has taken that out of context because he's a pretty mm. humane man. I don't think he want anyone to die, let alone his mother, who's 80-plus, and his father's 80-plus. You know, the whole point was that it was a balance, and the balance is this, as we all know, that the economy has mounted up £2 trillion mm. pounds of debt, uh, well, young people are suffering. Uh, it was a terrible, difficult balancing act, yes. and I think Cummings is... Sorry, go on. Although, Tom, I was going to say, I mean, colourful is one way of putting it. Others might call it racist and ageist. But, but I'll move on and ask you, do you think he still wants the job? Yes, I do. And I think hmm. that, I think, you know, the whole thing, racist and ageist, it's so easy. I mean, it's the toughest job imaginable. No, you have to tell me who could have done it better in hmm. Westminster to date. And does he want the job? Certainly. I mean, my view, I haven't talked to him, but I'm convinced he's a man who wants 10 years in the job because there's a Johnson era, as there's a Thatcherite era or a Blairite era. And uh, that, that's the whole point. He, he's there for history. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.